I'm Mark Laberton, president of Fuller Theological Seminary. Welcome to Conversing. It's my great joy today to welcome Audrey Denny to Conversing. Audrey is not a person that I've had an opportunity to get acquainted with before. She is a person that with me holds certain friends in common, and that's partly how I've come to know about her. But her story, it seems to me, is a story that represents things that are happening nationally and locally in various places. And I'm just so grateful for the chance to be able to host you on Conversing, Audrey. Welcome. Thank you so much, Mark. I'm thrilled to be here. Audrey's background, just for those who are listening to this, is a background that was rooted, as I understand it, Audrey, in the Central Valley of California. A lot of agricultural background in your family that goes on in your college work. It goes on eventually in your teaching and your education in various ways. But the arc that I want to pick up on is not only that arc, but also then the way that that gets joined to concerns in the northern part of California and regional concerns environmentally, agriculturally, economically, socially. And she represents, in my mind, a person whose whose story represents a lot of what's happening right now with young activist women who, in her case, specifically because of her faith, are taking action to move toward the political sphere. And it's that story that I want to kind of unpack. So thank you again for being willing to have this conversation. I'm just happy to be here. Audrey, for all of us who are just getting acquainted with you, give us a quick overview of your background and and what brings you to this moment in your life that earlier this year you began a race for Congress. You bet. I'll give you the 30-second version of who I am. So I was born in the Central Valley, as you mentioned, and then grew up my young adult life on a farm on the central coast of California. Moved to Chico about 15 years ago to go to college. And as soon as I moved to this town, I I fell in love with it. My professional background is primarily in agriculture education. I taught at the university. I worked internationally a few times in agriculture education, and that's what I do professionally now. But just over a year ago, I mean, it was Thanksgiving Day 2017, I got kind of hit upside the head by the Holy Spirit with a real clear call on my heart to to step out in public service for the first time and run for Congress. So I ran in this past election cycle. I launched my campaign on January 2nd of 2018. And for the first 10 months of the year, I, I was the Democratic congressional candidate for California's first district. And um, I just lost my election on November Oh, my God, I, I know this date, the 6th, November 6th. <laughs> and then two days later, my um, the county where I live and the county that I love so much was consumed by the campfire. So it's been it's been quite a year. 2018 has. Quite a year, indeed. So tell us about that experience of somehow having this background, having this education and experience, this engagement that's already in place, and then... What does uh, being hit upside the head by the Holy Spirit mean? <laughs> Tell us about that. What was that yeah, experience? Yeah, you, 
You bet. So I was raised Episcopalian, but I didn't really make my faith my own until college. But both of my older sisters are now Episcopalian priests, and my mom and my stepdad are also Episcopalian priests. So wow, I'm the least churchy person in my family, like hands down. Like I'm... We used to joke because it was a priest, a priest, and a bartender. Um, I bartended when I was teaching, and now it's a priest, a priest, and a politician, which I think is probably worse. Worse, yes, exactly. But, like, I'm not, like, I've n- out of the three of us, I've never been the churchy sister. Like, I mean, I go on Sunday, and I have an active faith life, but it's not, like, this is not my gig. So for me to tell you that I ran for Congress because the Holy Spirit put that on my heart is, like, not a normal thing for me to say. Yes. It was the first real kind of visceral sense of call that I ever got. I was riding in the car. My sister Robin was driving. It was Thanksgiving day and we were headed up to Chico where I live. And we're going to spend a couple just chill sister days, going to relax. And we passed a sign to Roseville and Robin said, oh my God, I just read this article in the LA Times about these three women all in their thirties, all from the Roseville area who are all running for Congress for the first time. And right when she said that, my stomach dropped And all the hair stood up on my arm. And she said, why not you? And then there was just this dead silence in the car. And the air felt thicker. And I looked at her and she looked at me. And I was like, is this happening right now? And she's like, yeah. And then we talked the rest of the ride home about the vulnerabilities of the incumbent that I was challenging. And about how... You know, my my career had had kind of shaped me and my skill set in this way to actually be able to do this and and the network that I had created and who did we know and was it really possible? And and we got into full on sister brainstorming mode. I mean, we made it like a Google spreadsheet of like pros and cons (laughs) of running for public office. All the things sisters do, you know. We'd like to Um, distribute that to our whole listening uh, (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. It is spot on. I looked back at it the other day and the cons and the pros are spot on. But it was just, it was this real incredible moment. And um, another kind of fun fact is, I knew that the person I needed to manage my campaign was my pastor. And so I convinced wow. my pastor out of, after, because I, I go to the Presbyterian church up here in Chico and my pastor who, you know, had been in pastoral ministry for 20 years and was the acting head of staff at our church for two years. I convinced him to leave a career in ministry to come run my campaign. And so I think I see my faith as not only the the why I initially stepped in the race, but we it was really the the center of how we ran the race and really what we talked about every day because every single day I was preaching a message of believing in the inherent worth and dignity of all human beings and fighting for justice comes from that core belief that I hold. And that's that's a human rights principle, but it's also the core of my faith as an Episcopalian that that we're all equal, right? And we all are equal because God loves us all the same. And so that's really, I mean, I didn't talk about my faith on the campaign trail a lot. I talked about it as in reference to how it shaped me. But the things that I talked about and the beliefs that I carry are because of my faith. Right. Well, I want to just dwell a little bit longer on this car ride and the immediate aftermath. So you're driving along, you have this incredible... Aftermath is a great word for it, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) There was the car ride and then there was the aftermath. And I'm sure that in some ways you're still experiencing that. We'll come to that later. But just so you're driving along, you start having this overwhelming feeling. Now, what were the things that began to converge that seemed so different than just an idea? What was the discernment that you were feeling or the, can you capture in other words, 
why it seemed so clear that it was the Holy Spirit moment and not yeah. just a, another bright idea. It was a physical feeling. Mm -hmm. The way that I experienced the Holy Spirit in my everyday life, I call it, sometimes I call it joy acid reflex because it feels <laughs> like that's what it, I mean, that's what it feels like. It's pretty descriptive, right? right? It's when I, when I'm connected with the Spirit through prayer or by being outside or through singing in church, like I, I physically feel the Spirit like in my chest, like I have, like I'm having acid reflux. And mm -hmm. then sometimes I'll get the chills and my hair will stand up on my arm mm -hmm. and this is exactly yeah. what it felt like. Yeah. It felt like being punched in the stomach and then all of these same physical reactions that I know I get when I'm discerning the Spirit's presence near me. And so as you began, I don't to, know, it's the, yeah, as you began to grasp, it was really the, organic. Yes, 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 yes. I can hear it. it was it was physical as much as it was mm -hmm. conceptual or anything like that. It's amazing. What would you say as you began to start taking the tally of oh my gosh, oh my gosh, could I imagine it? Where did you go first as you started measuring? The risk, the possibility, the the dauntingness or the hopefulness. Where did yeah. you find yourself going? So the first, so from Thanksgiving until January 1st was completely filled with this hopefulness in the sense that I can do it. And I'm real type A. And so I made a plan and a spreadsheet of everyone that I could ask for money. And I made a list of everyone I knew who knew anything about politics. And I started calling them. And then I started calling everyone they knew to finally like get some professional help that knew how to spell politics. Like I watched the West Wing in high school and that's as right. much as I knew about politics right. before I jumped right. into this. Right. So we started making all those calls and did all the planning. But then that very first day we launched the campaign, I had this overwhelming sense of not being enough. Right. And this was a, the first eight weeks of the campaign yes. for me were pure human made hell that I had put myself in because I wasn't leaning in and trusting the call that the Holy Spirit put in front of me. I was, I let all of my anxieties and my fear completely take over and yes. I wasn't enough. I didn't know enough. I didn't have enough. I wasn't, right. I didn't have any money. The fraud syndrome. All, yeah, totally, totally. And fraud syndrome, imposter syndrome, it just, it took me over for eight whole weeks. And then it wasn't until I was able to kind of reconnect with, with that initial sense of call and sense of purpose that I was able to start to move through that. And that's something that I that I struggled with. I think it's something we all struggle with. I feel a lot stronger now in that area than than I did a year ago. But um, yeah, so some of the beginning feelings. How, that's very helpful. How would you say you were affected when you began to think about this, that there is this whole movement going on of young women activists who are engaging in politics? Were you consciously aware of that and felt like I'm part of this wave? Or did it feel to you like you were simply taking individual action in response to needs that you felt you could actually just address? Yeah. I knew that I was inspired by that wave. And I knew that that was what had given me some of the initial yes. courage to step into this realm. But I never thought I was the same. Mm -hmm. Like I never thought I was good enough. Mm -hmm. It's that same. I felt like high school yes. a lot. This yes. sounds dumb, but it, I felt like <laughs> oh, I was back in the that's high school really cafeteria, yes. like comparing myself to the other candidates yes. and being like, oh, I bet they're working harder. Yes. I bet they're better at call time than me. I bet they're better at giving stump speeches than yes. I am. Because yes, um, yes. my district is kind of forgotten up here, right? I mean, California's first, which is the 11 counties in the northeastern corner of the state that has, you know, long been, my part of the world hasn't had a Democratic representative since the mid-70s. So we've long been written off. And so to be a young, I'm in my mid-30s, to be a young female 
Democratic challenger with no political experience going up against an incumbent who's been in office since I was in high school. Like, no one was paying attention to my race. It wasn't until after I raised a million dollars that people were like, oh, there's something happening up there. Yes. And so I had just, I knew that I wanted to be part of this movement of women, but I never, it took me a long time to realize like, oh no, what I did was the same thing that everyone else did, which was run for the U.S. House of Representatives. And I'm not sure if that makes any sense. Sure it does. Yeah, absolutely. So in your region then, what would have been the top three issues that you felt you were really needing to address and you would hope to change if you had been elected? Healthy forests, healthy people, and healthy communities. Have you ever said that before? um, (laughs) I'm playing, I might be, there's a chance I'm playing with slogans for some other thing that I might be doing after the first year. No, it's, we talked a lot about rural health care. Yes, yes, yes. We talked a lot about forest health and we talked a lot about the kind of the economic conditions in the communities up here. I had a crazy, I'm not sure if if our mutual friends told you about this, but I had a crazy health scare in the middle of our campaign. Yes, I did hear this. Tell us about that. That that really kind of made rural health an even more visceral issue for me. In mid-August, my doctor discovered a football-sized tumor inside one of my ovaries Mm. that turned out to be borderline for stage one cancer, but it wasn't yet cancer, thankfully. Mm. And I had Mm. it, I was under the knife in surgery Mm. nine days after they discovered it, but I had to go all the way up to Oregon to get it removed. Mm. In my 11 counties, there's two counties where women can't deliver babies. Like we are remote rural up here. And we've got two big cities in the whole 11 county district and they're Chico and Redding that are both less than 100,000 people. And so trying to get people from Southern California for the Bay Area to really understand what life is like up here right. is sometimes a challenge. But I mean, the the medium income for folks up here is $47,000, you know, wow. Yeah, yeah. we have a lot of challenges up here and um, we need a an effective leader who will who will work to make life better for the people. Right, right, right. Absolutely. Audrey, when you proceeded then, you got over this eight week hump where you felt so overwhelmed. You eventually won a primary. Tell us about that. And then what happened between the primary and the election itself? So I was kind of an underdog going into the primary because I, quote unquote, got into the race late. I like to say it wasn't a party until I showed up. But (laughs) there was it was a crowded primary field. There was seven contenders who were all campaigning with varying degrees of professionalism and seriousness. But I got outspent two to one by the woman who came in third. Mm. And I had beat her by about six and a half points. So that felt like we were doing something right. So we took that momentum that we kind of gained in the primary and that that credibility. And we blasted through the summer. We ramped up our field program. I think we knocked on like almost 100,000 doors. But we we got stymied kind of in mid-August when this cancer scare happened. And I took 10 days off the campaign trail after abdominal surgery and then was back at it 10 days later. And then mm. we, we pushed through till November. And we, it's hard to explain the magnitude of what we did in terms of mobilizing people. But on election night, we had a big party in a historic theater in downtown Chico. And there was a thousand people there. Wow. Um, and previously, like in Chico, the Democratic Party couldn't fill a round table, you know. And so we had we had mobilized this huge group of people. And there was people from all 11 counties. There was a 93-year-old woman and there were babies. There mm. were people of every ethnic background represented 
that live in in our communities. And there was straight people and gay people, and there was Republicans and Democrats and people who were 50 years old and voting for the first time and people who were 18 and voting for the first time. And Mm. it was a magical night. It was one of the hardest nights of my life, but it was also one of the best nights of my life. And that's really the picture that I hold on to in terms of looking back on what we were able to accomplish is mobilizing a group of people who cared about making their communities better that much that they would they would show up for an event like that was was really powerful since it could be that maybe no one listening to this has actually run for office before tell us about that hard evening i mean clearly it's a hard evening because you didn't win but it's much more complicated than that tell us what that part of the journey was like yeah, it's really, it's really, so a year of my life, and I'm a hard worker. Like when I was three years old, I, have I, that sense. Um, <laughs> yes, I got, you built a my log parents cabin gave me, after cutting t- trees down by your teeth. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like my parents gave right. me office supplies when I was three for Christmas wow. because wow, I just wow. wanted to play work. Yes. I had a list. Right, so I said, right, work room, right. work room. Like I'm like, I love that. I'm that girl. Like I don't have <laughs> hobbies. Like my hobbies are being on various boards of nonprofits. Like, yes, that's what I do right. for fun. Yeah. Right. So I'm like, I'm kind of the worst. Yes. So I, I leaned into that, mm-hmm. that workaholism. So after like a year of doing nothing but working yes. and then this particular morning on election day, you know, we were up at four hanging door hangers on people's doors in the dark and like the adrenaline, like my adrenal glands, I still need to yes. figure out how to calm them down. Like they've yes. just been pushing me and pushing me and pushing me. And then we come to the end of the day and I had the last three weeks of the election I had had on my heart that that I was going to win. And it felt like, it felt like in that moment to me, like the Holy Spirit had set me on this journey to win. Looking back, I think the Holy Spirit gave me that feeling because I knew that I needed that to be able to get other people to activate and believe in the cause. And so, but so like I was walking downtown that day and I I knew I was going to win in my heart. And then the doors opened at eight. So between eight and eight forty-five, I was standing outside and mm. welcoming people and hugging them as they mm. came in. Um, and then I went in at eight forty-five, and there's a group of women called the Old Broads for Audrey who were singing songs that they wrote, <laughs> that old, like old sixties and seventies songs that they had like reworked to be songs about me. It's they wore orange shirts. It was hilarious. Um, so they were like performing on stage in this big theater. And then at nine fifteen, my campaign manager pulled me backstage and was like, hey, uh, you need to hear this from me. But the New York Times just called it for Doug, who was the congressman. And and then I felt this deep, deep sadness, right? Yes, and this almost yes, brokenness. Of course. And I texted one of my best friends who was in the audience and I said, hey, will you come pray with me right now? Because I, I can't, I can't deal with this. I don't know how. And so he came backstage and prayed with me. And, and then somewhere... One of my supporters had given me a bottle of whiskey on the way in, and I wasn't supposed to drink that (laughs) night, but I opened up the bottle of whiskey and I took a big slug of that. And then I had to go back out and talk to people, and I felt like I'd let them down. And I felt Mm -hmm. like, you know, in the moment, like I'm looking at these little girls who, you know, from three years old all the way up to, you know, 18-year-olds voting for the first time, and I'm looking at them and I'm like, I let them down because that's what it feels like, right? Mm -hmm. And that's not true, but that's what it felt like. And then somehow mustered myself to give one more rousing speech that night. Um, It wasn't quite a concession speech, and I don't really know how to do that, but I recast the vision for what we had done and tried to encourage and motivate people to keep working. And then later that night, something pretty incredible happened. I 
went back to my house with a handful of my closest friends and my sisters. And we were listening to Taylor Swift and drinking wine. And um, I knew I needed to pray. And that, that day, this is getting in the weeds a little bit, but that day, one of my really good friends had had heart, open heart surgery. Mm. And the first time I had physically like been like fallen to my knees was on election day when I got the text that he had lived through this surgery that was probably going to kill him. And so I'd like fell to my knees right before the election night party. Mm. And then later that night, like I was physically like physically, I fell to my knees again. And Mm. I was like, we need, we need to pray. And this Mm. is at this point, it's like two in the morning. Yes. And I prayed for the congressman and I prayed for this woman who had taken an attack ad out against me. And I prayed for all of the people that hated me because of the message I was carrying. And it was like, it was words that weren't coming from me. Mm-hmm. Like it was, it was the most amazing experience, but I just, I, I knew that that was what, what had to happen. And like yeah. God had to work in my heart that way. And I'm actually getting emotional just thinking about it. Cause it was like, it was really one of the most powerful things that has ever happened to me in that because I was like that night I sobbed so much that like I got a sinus infection because I had (laughs) I cried so you know when you like I never cried enough to like clog up my sinuses to get a sinus infection like I was so sad but I was able to like God put on my heart somehow to be able to pray for these people who Mm -hmm. had who had said really horrible things about me and and Mm -hmm. made up a bunch of lies about me Mm. But it was so important for me that night to be able to do that. I don't know if I don't even and remember the question. Of I'm just rambling. Were, and a community of people that were surrounding you in the middle of all that. That's just. Yeah. With amazing. Taylor Swift playing in the background. Like it was really yes. incredible. Yes. Yes. So. Well, what staggered me about it, I have to say that I was following your election quite closely that night because I knew that it was happening. And I was, I will say that I was really, really sorry when I heard that you had lost. And. I called Greg and Laura, our mutual friends, soon after that and just said, I'm so bummed. I really had hoped that Audrey was going to win. And here we had never met, but because of their expression of such huge regard for you and affection and support, I had followed your campaign and was just very, very grateful for the kind of person that you were in the middle of the process. And what you've just shared only underscores that further. What's then whiplashing about it all even more than is that you have this unbelievable low point. You're just beginning to kind of pick yourself up from the whole experience. And then, and then the fire happens. I mean, yeah, unbelievable. Just walk us through that from your own vantage point. Yeah. So I think Tuesday night or Wednesday morning, I guess I went to bed at about four and then woke up and we had a big brunch for supporters and my friends and family. And then that Wednesday night, we were at our mutual friend's house. Greg and Laura threw me a little party for kind of family and friends who were still in town. And I slept in on Thursday morning for the first time in a year. And I woke up at 10 a.m. and it was pitch black, dark outside. And um, paradise had already burned down Mm. and much of the surrounding area in our county. And so I just frantically started calling and texting my friends that lived up there to make sure that everybody was alive. And thankfully, they were. And then we kind of immediately jumped into fire relief mode. And so for me, what that looked like was going down to my church and 
my church did the same thing in the Orville Dam emergency that we had last February, right. where we started kind of coordinating housing and, and started collecting resources and distributing them out to the shelters. And so I was doing that through the weekend. And then I had to go back to work that Monday. I hadn't earned a paycheck in almost a year. And so I flew to Nebraska on a work trip and then came home and, and jumped back into fire recovery mode. And so I've been kind of helping, helping where I could standing up or standing up a long-term recovery group, which is the community official community response. It's the nonprofits and the mm-hmm. private sector coming together to liaise with the county. So I've been active in, in that effort, but it's been wild, Mark. Like I'm sitting right now in the studio of a good friend of mine who worked on my campaign, who he and his family lost everything. Two other of my campaign staffers lost everything. I just finished a couple of days ago calling my 300 supporters up there who lost everything. Like we're the magnitude of it. Mm-hmm. Even we weren't prepared for. I wasn't prepared emotionally to understand the magnitude of it. Even after the car fire that ravaged Reading and took a thousand homes yes, yes. this year, and then the Santa Rosa fires last year. It's almost impossible to be able to wrap your mind around the devastation of an entire town yes, in the surrounding areas. Yes. And so we're still, as a county, very, very much reeling and in the midst of trauma from that and secondary trauma and just trying to – a lot of folks are just trying to figure out what they can do today, right, to move forward. What's the smallest step they can take? And then some of us who you know, didn't lose everything are able to – kind of take a broader, longer term view and say, what do we need to be doing as a community county right. to, to continue recovery? But it's been a wild, wild month. So. Well, what it what struck me about that was that the fire exposed all of the needs that you said you ran on in your campaign, which were already thick in the region and in the county. And then it intensified all of those three categories that you said you were working on to an even greater degree because it all gets exposed by the vulnerability of this fire and its and its devastation and what it exposes about the networks the economy the environment all of it it's just really such an amazing intensification now yeah. if i was to go back and listen to the tape of this conversation i think there was a moment a little earlier where you suggested that maybe there's something coming up after january that might be part of the trajectory. I'm not sure if you want to talk about that or not, but if you do anything you want to say about the future. Yeah, I on election night, I got to tell the the crowd of people gathered, you know, that there's one thing that I know in the very, very core depths of my soul. And that is that I'm going to be fighting and working for the communities in this part of the world for, for decades and decades to come. I was able to about three weeks ago, take a group of campfire survivors to Washington, D.C. to do some lobbying. And it uh-huh. was three nurses from Feather River Hospital that evacuated 67 people in 45 minutes um, wow. and then an educator. And the nurses were the ones that were interviewed by Anderson Cooper on CNN. They had gotten some body cam footage was released of their of their rescue. And so they, they became kind of insta famous. And we we took them back to D.C. to do some lobbying. And I set up 17 meetings in two days. And at the end of those two days, I had this overwhelming feeling of peace, knowing that I found, I think I found my soul's true vocation. Like, I think I've, everything about who I am has been wired for public service. And most people don't win the first time they run for something, right? And right. so I, right. I don't know, I, I know that I will be continuing to 
work to make my communities better and I'll be continuing in politics and and fighting for people. And there is, I'm okay, this is one more thing to think about. So I'm pretty well steeped in human rights theory and work. I got to work with a human rights organization in Latin America called Cristosol. It's one of the leading human rights organizations in the Northern Triangle of Central America. And one thing I learned from their executive director is that the things that are worth fighting for don't always get accomplished in our lifetime, right? We're not fighting for human rights, thinking that there will never be any human rights violations at the end of our lives, right? Like we fight for what's right and we fight for what's good because that's what we're supposed to do and that's what we're wired to do. And so even if, I don't think this is the case, but even if I was running in a district that was gerrymandered to always be red, I would keep fighting because I am fighting for love and hope and truth and justice and and that's what we're supposed to do, right? And yeah, so that's that's a little bit about right. what's next. I'm sure your listeners can infer to look back at my website <laughs> after the first of the year. <laughs> well, Audrey, this is exactly why I wanted to talk to you, because it's that convergence of what you've just said, this deep sense of God's conviction, the experience of your background where you've taken a sequence of risks that have built up a, a background of both hard work vision, experience, and so forth. You've been exposed to, in this case now, you've crossed a line of entering politics, which is its own, I suppose, essential and ugly universe of things that happen. We are aware of how much lives are hanging in the balance based on political decision makers and either the success or failure of political leadership. And while all of that isn't the only way that people can express their commitment to justice, it is certainly a piece of that. And in your story, and I think really in the story of a lot of people across the country right now, red and blue and purple and green and whatever other colors there might be, are people who are really motivated over this sense that making a local difference and holding on to these central values is critical work, which can't be passed on to some earlier generation or to any particular group of people, we have to get engaged. That seems to me to be one of the loud themes of your campaign and of, of what you've been saying today. Absolutely. And I like to say often that, you know, our, our democracy isn't something that happens every two years or every four years. It's the, the actions that citizens take every single day to make their communities better and, and to fight for our democracy. And they they do that by, you know, right now, I think we do that most effectively by by talking to our neighbors and talking to people who disagree with us and by reminding them what makes our country strong, right? And and that being able to have that dialogue is what makes our country strong and being able to hold and understand and value differing points of view is what is what makes our country strong. And I think um, when we all work towards that every, every day and we all work towards recognizing the inherent humanity in our neighbor um, and honoring their experiences, that we can start to to heal some of the brokenness that that we're seeing and the polarization that we're seeing. And yeah, I'm, I'm glad that that came through in, in what I got to share today. Audrey, if you were to talk to people in the, that are listening to this podcast who are probably not in most cases going to ever run for political office, but could certainly be political activists, people who want to let their faith land in the political spheres, what are some things that you would just encourage them to do? You've had this experience of acting locally what should people consider yeah. as they look yeah. at the issues that are before them? Absolutely. You've got to figure out what you care about, and then you've got to find candidates at every 
level of government that that care about what you care about. And so if, you know, if you're really worried about climate change and you're really worried about the, you know, International Panel on Climate Change's report that came out from the UN, right. then you need to be fighting for climate action on the local, state, and federal level. You know, if you're really, really concerned about equal rights or you're really concerned about health care, you need to be finding candidates who will have the courage to act on those issues. And so and it's local, right? It's it's your city council members, it's your county board of supervisors, it's your state assembly members and senators, it's your your you know your reps in Congress and your senators, it's everybody. And so it's educating yourself, figuring out what you care about, finding candidates that match you or will have the courage to take action, and then getting them elected. And yes. so that means knocking on doors, that means making phone calls, that means having a $5 recurring donation to their campaign, even though it's not tax deductible. And that means all of those things, right? I feel like so for so much of my adult life, I was like, oh, yeah, I voted. I vote. I'm such a good American. I vote. Right, yay. Right. Yay me. You know, and now, I mean, it's almost 2019. And I think most of us know that just voting isn't acceptable anymore. We have to do so much more than that. And the thing that I got to say a lot on the stump was, you know, like it feels good when you – get engaged and when you show that you care by doing things like knocking on doors and making phone calls, it it feels good in your soul because I, I really think that we're wired to engage with other people. And so when we're getting to have authentic conversations with other people about things that we care about and things that they care about, it's good for your soul. So yeah, get involved. That's what I say. And don't let the word activist scare you. Like I never consider myself an activist. Like I was just a teacher teacher, former bartender who was like, yeah, I'm going to run for Congress. I was never, I I was never an activist before I did this. So just knowing that the smallest action that you can take can make a huge difference. It's not just for the pros. Yeah. Yeah. Audrey, thank you. I do think your story is very, very inspiring. And I just have a feeling that there will be plenty of opportunity in the future to hear more about how your activism and life and work, whatever form, whether it ends up being in political office or something else, I'm certainly going to be paying attention, and I'm very curious to see how all this unfolds. Thank you for taking the risks of faith and life and just your person to put yourself on the line in this way and to do it for the sake of people that you know and don't know and for a world that you deeply believe God loves and cares about, and you're taking that seriously. So thank you a thousand times over for that, and thanks for this conversation. Thank you so much, Mark. This has been really, really special. been listening to a production of Fuller Studio. Fuller Studio provides articles, podcasts, videos, and other resources for a deeply formed spiritual life. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit us at fuller.edu studio. Fuller Studio.